0: Renegade is someone who renounces conventions. It is through this innovation mindset that Renata Cantini runs Renegade Partners, an early-stage deep technology investment firm, which she co-founded and is currently a managing partner at. Renata's been working in venture for over 15 years, having also been a partner at Lux Capital and Felicia's Ventures. Prior to becoming a VC, she was an investment manager at Stanford University's endowment, which invests in dozens of private equity and venture capital funds. In this episode, Renata shares the thesis behind Renegade and their investments. What is a founder's super critical stage? Potential red flags founders should be aware of? The importance of diversity in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice. So I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At VivaRail, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like NewBank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to Zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to Latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I'd worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go!, We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. First of all, it's great to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You've built a really impressive career in VC, and there's not that many like people from Latin America that have done that in the Valley. Like I had Santiago Supotowski from Emergence recently. He's wonderful. Yeah, he's fantastic. There's not that many people in general from Latin America, let alone women that have risen the ranks, uh, and so it's really cool to chat with you and, you know, hear more about a little bit about your story and also just learn from you and your experience. So, thanks for making the time.
1: My pleasure. And thank you for inviting me and in for this great initiative.
0: Thanks. Yeah, we're just getting started here with Latitude, but it's it really has some good momentum also.
1: I'd love that. All right, let's get to it. And
0: Let's do it. Maybe you could explain the concept of the super critical stage just to kick things off.
1: Yeah. So before we started Renegade, uh, my co-founder and I actually spent a, a good amount of time asking ourselves, why does the world need another venture capital firm? I started my career investing venture funds for the Stanford Endowment in 2007 when venture capital was going through this like amazing transformation around product market fit. And all of a sudden it was 10x cheaper to start a company and you could have AWS, global distribution channels, uh, mobile computing. You could do a lot with less uh, with a lot less capital. And that, in part, created this, this new slew of firms, right? So Andreessen Horowitz started around that time, Felices, which I later joined, first round. There was all this whole ecosystem that understood that whenever something changes for entrepreneurs, there's a big opportunity for new firms to, to start. And what Rosanna and I were seeing on the ground was like, okay, companies now are raising more money. They're raising more money faster. And where does this money go? Is people and marketing. So we actually look at data from the past five years companies are raising capital two times faster. And the number of employees is now like two to three times larger when they raise that capital. Which means like now you have different challenges around scaling. You have amazing opportunities. The markets are global. You have Fortune 100 buying from startups, which was like new. Like the people did not used to do that before. Capital is abundant. You have, you know, $4 trillion companies that are all in technology. And now you have this momentum right? Momentum and velocity around let's go seize this opportunity. And where does it go? It goes to people. And this is what we call the supercritical stage is that moment of you found your product market fit, you know, who buys your dog food, where you distribute, where you find your revenue. And now you're really finding what's the organization that's going to continue to deliver on that. And it's going to scale. So this is what we call the supercritical stage.
0: And What are some of the metrics that you recommend founders keep an eye on when approaching kind of this stage?
1: I think, you know, for us is not just the quantity, but the quality. So the the sweet spot for us is on the revenue front, companies that are doing all the way from a million a year to call it a million a month. They have about 15 to 30 employees on the low end, 100 on the high end. And they're kind of looking to raise 10 to $50 million in uh, capital. But we don't look at the numbers. We look more like a state of life. And what is top of mind for you? It's really when you found that repeatable revenue source, right? You, you know exactly why your, your customer is buying your product. You know the channels that you need to distribute. And you're really now thinking about, okay, how do I uh, build an executive team? Or how do I build somebody, bring somebody in to kind of head my go-to-market initiative that I have some inkling on, but I need to build a machinery around? Or you're thinking about creating that net new level of employees that you're going from 30 people to call it 100 in, in a year, And how do you actually create the processes and you create the infrastructure to allow those people to not only come, but succeed? So if I'm a founder, the metrics that I'm looking at are not just the number of revenue, but like, is this revenue repeatable, high quality? And can I explain where I get it and where I'm going to continue to get it? And the other piece is, do I have a good understanding of my cost to generate the revenue? Like, do I understand my gross margin, the type of business engine that I need to build to continue to deliver that metric, those revenues, and are those sustainable? It does need to be perfect from day zero and you have room to improve, but you understand what kind of engine it is, what type of business model. Is it a SaaS? Is it a service? Or like you know, where, where do you comp in terms of the business engine you're building?
0: And how do you help founders build those engines and, and get them in better shape for that next phase of growth?
1: We really believe that founders are best at understanding their customers and understanding their markets and knowing why customers want to buy. But this idea of like, there's so much written out there around the zero to one, around the, okay, you need to, you know, three, three, two, 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 your revenue, or these ideas of like, how do you continue to scale on the financial side? But this idea of like sitting back and say, okay, who are the people that are actually going to allow you to deliver those financial results? What are the functions that are important? And peeling back of, okay, if you want to 3X your revenue, have you figure out your, you know, your marketing function or your biz dev function? What is the type of uh, sales that you need, right? And how many salespeople are you going to need to actually deliver those financial results? What is the time to train somebody to actually start producing quota? And you know, when do you start hiring those people? And that conversation around, OK, not just what you're going to do, but how are you going to get there is a very important conversation that changes so much from company to company. And this is a, where we spend most of our time.
0: I was listening to a podcast uh, yesterday. Jeff Lawson, the, the CEO of Twilio, was being mm-hmm. interviewed, and he was recalling the early days when he had a moment and he was just really stuck and, and struggling. And he I remember he had a conversation with some of his investors. I think it was the folks over at Union Square Ventures And they were trying to help him unlock what was this, like, you know, this barrier. And they're like, draw your org chart. So he like (laughs) pulled out a pencil. He drew his org chart. And he's like, it was just him in a straight line with like 13 people. They're like, okay, there's your problem. (laughs) How do you think about kind of scaling the team and making those first critical hires and then developing the right kind of reporting structure to allow you to get leverage over your operations?
1: Yeah. So I think that the first question is to understand the difference between what you need today versus what you're going to need two years from now or whatever it is, like in a good short period of time. And and also, um, what are the ways that you solve the problems that you need today? Because sometimes, you know, the pain hurts so much right now that you just want to get the function filled. And this idea of like, okay, Am I, am I putting a Band-Aid on something that really hurts right now because, I don't know, my product development is behind schedule or something like that, and but not thinking about, okay, what am I going to need 12 months from now, 18 months from now? I think, first of all, having that distinction is important, knowing when you're hiring a bandaid versus when you're hiring for the longer term or somebody who can scale. And when you're hiring somebody who can scale, it's not just the caliber, oh, somebody's super experienced and they're going to be able to scale. It's more like, do you also have the job for somebody with that caliber to be interested and grow into and grow with so that they stick with you the next 18 months. So I think that's the first conversation around, okay, what do you need? And today's need may be very different than 18 months from now, and it's going to change very quickly. And then the other piece too is, what is the job? Sometimes somebody will say, oh, I need a better VP of sales. And then like, okay, why do you think you need a better VP of sales? Oh, because, you know, the sales cycle is really long. I'm like, okay, fair. And then you actually start drilling down and you realize that sales cycle is long, not because the, the salesperson is not bringing leads, but because they're actually not able to position the product in a way that it resonates with the customer. So it's actually a more a product marketing issue than a sales issue. It's not a sales motion, bring me the leads, figure out what the steps are, move things to the steps. Like, you're just not able to land the story. So as you kind of go down, it's like okay, what is the job? Sometimes you think that you need a function, but when you don't think about what that person is going to do, you're actually missing out on an opportunity.
0: The example you give, I've seen them many times too. I've been on work calls, <laughs> and it's like, do the customers really deeply understand what we're what we're offering? Like, is it communicate the concept to their their boss so that it gets pushed through? If it's a enterprise mm-hmm. sales, like, is it is the value prop clear? And uh, I see that time and time again with entrepreneurs.
1: And, you know, that idea, of like, how can you help your customer become a hero? That's so valuable. Yeah. Help that person on the other side become a hero and do their product better really unlocks a lot of stuff. So another thing that we actually spent a lot of time working on is what we call founder role design. Because something really cool that happens around the super critical stage, and I think that the lifestyle comparison is actually teenage years, right? Uh, You're not a full grown up yet, but like you're becoming a grown up and there's evolution and the super critical stage is kind of like that for companies. So the founder role actually changes, right? Because like before you started doing everything and you have very few people doing a bunch of jobs and but actually figuring out, man, I'm the CEO. I can actually design the job I want to have when this company is at scale. So what am I really amazing at? What are the type of people I want to surround myself with in terms of skill sets to actually allow me to do the things that I am amazing at. And very few CEOs are deliberate about that their own role design. They think so much about the org, they don't think about their themselves. And I'll give you an example, right? So we have one company that we invested in, has uh, now one hundred and thirty people, and it became time for them to bring in a CRO to really take revenues even further. And you know, they were they weren't finding a good match. The company's really exciting, great VCs, great opportunity, but like it was really hard for them to actually find a good match for the the chief revenue officer function. And then when we actually started talking to the CEO uh, about, okay, what is really that you're looking for in a CRO and what is your own superpower? The CEO realized, man, I'm a closer. I love actually going in and closing the deals. What I need is somebody who will bring me leads and will kind of do that plowing for me so I can go in and close. And they actually changed because of that realization of the CEO of like, man, I'm a closer. I want somebody who can pass me the ball so I can score. I'm kind of like Romario, you know, pass me the ball so I can make the goal. Then they changed the the profile of CIO that they were looking for. And and the search then became really successful.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I think doubling down on your strength is such an important thing. I remember being CEO, every CEO has like first time CEOs, massive imposter syndrome like you feeling uncomfortable you're at the board meeting and like you've never presented before and then there's all these emotions that happen when you're when you're an entrepreneur and you haven't been there before but there are certain skill sets like you know I wasn't great at the finance arm and the investors were clear about it like Nico Sakazi told me he's like we didn't invest in you because you're some kind of financial guru and we liked your leadership skills and your ability to recruit and these other things so i think having clarity and doubling down on your strengths is just It's something so important for founders to do because everyone has their superpower. That's
1: right. And also things that you just don't want to do. And there are important jobs. I know of people that don't like managing other people. So then you really need a COO or somebody that will actually manage people because managing people is so important, right? And it's a critical job and not every CEO needs to do everything or be good at everything. Um, And I think being upfront about, okay, what are the things that I shine and also, like, all of the things that I do or don't want to do, it's it's really, really important.
0: Yeah. You've got to be honest with yourself there. I mean, I think the classic example is obviously Sheryl Sandberg, which you came in and took over as COO and a huge lift on the organization there. And I think that understanding and being honest with yourself about what you're good at and then doubling down on your strengths and then being able to ask for help is important because, you can't supplement the team if you're not clear on where are those areas that you need support. And so I want to transition a little bit about Renegade and walk us through a little bit the step-by-step of the investment process at Renegade from the first contact to making and communicating a decision. Yeah. Uh
1: so the one of the huge benefits of starting something from scratch is that you have a blank slate. Right. And I've been in venture for almost 15 years now and Roseanne for a little bit over 10. And we kind of took a step back and we said, okay, what are the things that we've seen that work that we want to keep? And what are the things that we want to do different? And one thing that we look around and we saw like, okay, we don't really believe in this idea of like the Midas touch. Yes, pattern recognition is important, but there's like, I know one when I see it, like we believe in actually explaining why things happen and also trying to learn from the decisions we make. I mean, there are decades of Nobel laureates writing about decision science and biases and all of that. Like, why don't we use some of it? And so this is one of the things that we really believe, like, okay, how can we learn from the decisions that we're making, not believing in the the Midas touch and making try to making everything sort of explainable, leveraging decision science. And then the other piece is around, okay, never before we've had this many breadcrumbs about companies, about markets, about sentiment. I mean, they're everywhere, right? And humans are really bad at understanding uh, or tracking large data points over time and seeing patterns of large data points over time. Humans are really good at relationships and judgment, but like computers are pretty good at patterns and, and tracking breadcrumbs. So like, let's actually invest in some technology to allow us to see things that will augment the way that we think and the way that we make decisions. So we have a head data engineering engineer that's building a lot of data collection, not only about markets and companies, but also about the way we make decisions. And then the other piece is we we work very closely with the PhD in decision science to actually create a bunch of processes to understand like really quickly for us, okay, whenever we're looking at a company, what are the, the things that are most important about that company that you need to understand really fast? Because we know founder time is so valuable, right? Like you need to do diligence on the stuff that really matters for the good and for the bad to understand those things very quickly. And then also like, how are we learning about the way that we're making decisions? So Going back to how we, uh, you know, what's the investment process like? And from an entrepreneur perspective, we're a startup. You get to meet everyone really quickly. We don't have this whole, like, Monday partner meeting thing. We we try to go very organically as opportunities emerge. Like, we just get everybody together and we do all that. And then what we try to do in the background is, like, try to hone in very quickly on what are the things that we need to spend time on to very well understand this opportunity. Like, let's get to the 80-20 as quick as we can. So we do... On our Under the Hood, we do a lot of pre-mortems. Like, okay, it's five years from now, this company succeed. Because of luck, because of skill, what are the things that happened and probability. So we're actually trying to, and then everybody in the team actually answers it. And we do that anonymously. And then we sit down and we talk about, okay, like, what are the things that we're seeing? Are there patterns? And what is something that somebody's saying that is really unique? Like, because that will really kind of shine a light on what questions we need to ask from the entrepreneur. Right. Some for some companies really is let's understand the market. The product is great. The team is awesome. Go to market is great, but like, how's the market changing? What is the velocity of market? So, like, we we realize very quickly that that's the diligence point that we need to focus on. And we try to get very crisp uh, and tell the entrepreneur, like, okay, we're going to spend time on market. These are the questions we have, and these are the resources we're using. And some and some uh, companies really is understanding go to market. That is, okay, let's talk to your customers, let's talk to your VP of sales or whoever is doing go-to-market, let's go really deeply into pipeline funnel conversion, let's talk about the metrics, the other stuff like we're pretty uh, okay with. So actually honing in on what what matters allows us to not only move faster, but also tell the founder, this is where we're spending time and why.
0: Of our audience, w- where are you typically coming in at, check size, just just so we can yeah. match that?
1: So, we do everything from series A to series C. Like, we really don't care about the letters. That's like a cap table issue. It's not like we really care about that phase of life. Like, does scaling really matter to you? And then we can lead, co lead, participate. That also we don't care. We're more interested in, okay, how can we create all the reasons to say yes to companies? And check sizes, they range from uh, two to $10 million at the moment. And then the traditional model of reserves and all that stuff.
0: And what's the one that stands out? That's less known or less obvious. That something that you you might identify as as something that gets you talking internally and gets you concerned.
1: So one thing that we look really quickly and in closely to is uh, cap table. And is there anything funky with the cap table? Are the founders unusually diluted? Is there not enough option pool? Like, Because that tells you a little bit about the way the company is built and what are the incentives and are people motivated to swing for the fence or for the long term. This is not something that stops us from investing, but this is something where we kind of look and, and see founders that have very, very little ownership, option pool that doesn't exist or you know very little and they need to do a bunch of hiring. All of these things are points for conversation. The other piece that it's really tricky is around just like unprofitable or unprofitable revenue, meaning your payback is super long. Like you're basically yeah. just kind of that, that is really tough to, to get over. The other piece too is we're, we're cohorts hawks. We look at decaying cohorts are tough because like, yeah. you know, the more you scale, you probably assume that cost of acquisition will not go down. Right, like as markets get more saturated, it, it it goes up, not down. And then if you see cohorts is getting worse and worse, that's like very, very uh, heavy gravity.
0: Yeah, tough thing to reverse on the cap table side. What's the average dilution at Series A that you see? And I understand that there's not a hard and fast rule, but like, what do you like to see when it comes across your your desk?
1: No, I think it's more like the there are some companies that have more than one co-founder, right? So then you're gonna see one individual at the 20s but then you're like okay there're like three of them so that makes sense right so th- these are nuanced but i think when you kind of look at it and you see okay maybe it's like one solo ceo or the two co-founders that by seed or series a they've been diluted to below below 20 below 15% each and you're like this is going to be a capital intensive company Right. Like you're saying, OK, this company's going to dilute 20 percent next round and that's going to happen three more times, four more times. There's not going to be much left for them. That's tough. Uh, like low, low tens, even 20, depending on if like it's just one founder. Right. And like one yeah. CEO that's there, that 20 and coming at Series A is like, OK, like where did the rest go?
0: Yeah, I think as a first-time founder, like it's something that founders are less worried about because you're kind of just happy you're getting investment right. and you're growing. And I think it's something that as second, third-time founders, they're just a way m- greater awareness about how important that is. Yeah. And uh, it's something that you can kind of, obviously, as you're more experienced, you can optimize. You know, you've invested in a few very successful moonshots. What are some of those questions that you ask to analyze whether it's, it's one worth taking a big bet on?
1: I think the first thing you need to understand is like, really, what is the risk that you're taking? Right. And when you're actually looking at moonshot and the definition of moonshot usually is around technology risk. Mm -hmm. And you're also taking some risk around, is the market ready for this technology? So I think the first question is like, okay, can this be done? And assuming that this is possible to be done, will the market be ready for it? like those are the the two big risks that you're taking and then the third dimension of it is like okay how much does it cost and can I actually find capital to support all of that but you know like the, the first one there's so many markets right now that are extremely large and all the way from space there's so much happening in space technology thinking about a world where you have a lot of satellites, a lot of data collection, thinking about space cleanups, thinking about new communication in space. Like, there's a lot of investments happening there. Thinking about, okay, healthcare, but more around drug discovery, right? Really like that resurgence of um, now that you have DNA sequencing, now that you have personalized medicine, like, what does it mean for biotech and markets really ready to adopt and fund around autonomy? And AI, uh, cars, trucks, VTOLs, like all that stuff. So there's so many big markets that I think on the, the question, like, is the market ready to adopt? I think market risk is a lot less than it than it used to be 10, 15 years ago in so many big areas. I think the question then goes down to, is it possible? And really spending time understanding the technology, what are the big milestones that the company needs to hit? How much does it take to get there? And and it, the hard thing about moonshots is sometimes you may make a really cool scientific progress that like, oh my God, look at this thing that was never possible scientifically that the market goes and looks like, eh, that cost a lot of money, a lot of time. That's super cool in the lab, but from like a, you know, will the market value that is not there. So actually tying those things together is a, a really important thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, on the timing question, I mean, I remember there's a TED talk I think somewhere on the internet about timing being the biggest factor for success, right? And something it's it's a really hard thing to assess mm. whether is, is this the time now? How do you even grapple with that? What's the thought process like? You're looking at something that appears super futuristic, but there's a couple indicators that it could time could be now.
1: So the framework that that I used to think about it is that the question left what needs to be true. Mm-hmm. and applying that question to all the different aspects right? so well okay what needs to be true on the technology right and like really underpinning like do you have all the inputs right do you need to change inputs let's say you need to sem- let's say you need a semiconductor that either doesn't exist or you know there are very few in the world okay that increases risk right so you know really thinking about okay from a technology standpoint what is the cost for the inputs that you need, right? Now, for example, in biotech, the cost of DNA sequencing came down, uh, you know, it's going to be down less than $100, right? And that there's so much availability of people doing research of infrastructure, right? So like that lowers the risk of of things happening. And then when you think about, okay, market adoption, okay, are, how many potential customers are there, right? Is it fragmented or is it not? Do you need a, a huge market share to make it a big business or not? Uh, what is the time frame for this thing, right? Is it something that, oh, maybe it's possible in 10 years or is no, maybe it's possible in two, three years and they're demonstrable milestones. So I think actually getting granular, okay, like what do you need, what needs to be true and trying to understand in those vectors, it's, it's something that actually helps break it down.
0: If you would apply your same framework for, Latin America, Brazil and Latin America, in terms of a startup ecosystem, what would you describe as in terms of our state of affairs and where we are in the cycle?
1: So I think that the two biggest inputs for really like crazy startup success is human capital and financial capital. And I think that looking from those two vectors, like it's never been this good right? And it never been this good at the same time, which creates momentum. So because now you have, you know, I kind of go back 10 years, like you had that inflow of capital, everybody looking, but the talent supply wasn't kind of keeping pace, right? Because like, uh, it was maybe like first wave of people starting, not that many people starting companies. So hiring was so hard. And uh, I know a lot of people like, Oh, no, I'll keep my consulting job or right, like that risk averseness. So the human capital wasn't kind of following the financial capital. Uh, But right now you have second, third time entrepreneurs. You have people that are really excited about trying, right? You have success cases like 99, like Viva You have so many success cases that people look at and like, okay, that is a North Star. And this is really, really valuable because I think markets, market size was always there. Ingenuity. I think something that the Latin America talent is is just so creative. Like when you think about hypothesis experimentation, like we're we're used to stuff that changes all the time, and that's startup life, right? And that's iteration, that's A/B testing, that's figuring out what worked and double down because like we're, that's survival for us, right? So like all those things were there, but I think now it's at a at a scale, and I'm very excited. Because i guess never been this high this fast.
0: I love the parallel with the uncertainty, right? It's kind of taking what could be perceived as a negative where you're living in a society that has more uncertainty. And, you know, I experienced that. I lived in Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, and, you know, there's obviously different dynamics living in in those places, but it does create a uh, a certain ability to kind of adapt, right? And it's such an important quality of of an entrepreneur is to be able to go in and see a situation and not have all the information and then make a decision and, and be changing quickly. And so I think that those all bode well. And I think that's why we're going to see an incredible uh, volume of great entrepreneurs uh, continue to be born in the region. And you know I think we're seeing a lot more great investors also. And just to transition uh, a little bit, I heard that from a lot of Lemon that because Maya Capital has female co-founders, a lot of startups that are women are gravitate towards them and they go to them first does having a diverse group of decision makers at renegade serve as a competitive advantage for you as investors
1: yeah so I think what's happening is even even if the founder is not female companies now see the value in building a diverse team like diverse team outperforms the customers are diverse right like they they see uh the benefits and they also see the the hiccups that companies that fail to be diverse from the beginning and as they scale right they they have challenges or they can't hire or they have lost all those things right so like now the founders care about diversity a lot more and a lot sooner so I think you know this is something that we bring to the table that other people don't have and also we're diverse in terms of backgrounds right like from uh, we've invested we joke that we invested from napkin to s1 and everything from Dollar Shave Club, Glossier, Masterclass, Warby Parker, Cruise Automation, TransferWise. I mean, you named Compass, you named the industry, we've seen it. And, you know, I, I grew up in Brazil. Roseanne grew up in, in um, Ohio. She has an almost PhD in chemistry. We have people on our team that have very different backgrounds and think very differently than us on purpose because we, we really eat what we preach on the diversity thing.
0: It really does provide a more broad perspective that gives you uh, better insight. And tell us a bit about All Raise and its goals. What initiatives does it have in place for a more diverse ecosystem?
1: Yeah, um, so the big realization that we had was because the people that were making decisions on the venture capital side weren't diverse, diverse founders were getting a less share of the capital. Because like familiarity, right? People like what they know, people understand what they know, and because of that, there was a lot of money being left on the table. Great opportunities started by diverse founders, be it female, be it ethnically diverse, they weren't getting a lot of traction because the decision makers were not diverse. So when we first started all raise, there were nine percent of uh, the decision makers in venture capital were women, only nine percent. But if you think about the markets, it's like 50-50, right? And depending on what market it is that you look at, like the woman controls the the wallet. Um, So there was like this huge mismatch. And because of that, uh, a very small percentage of startups that were female-led or diverse-led were getting funded. So that was the impetus for starting All Raise. And then the mission there was like, let's increase the percentage of female funders and female founders or do now we increase the scope, diverse funders and diverse founders in the ecosystem because the world is better and richer for it. Um, so now that 9% is closer to 12%, 13% in three years, we have a lot more work to do. And we have this huge community of VCs and founders that are supporting each other. So we have uh, cohorts of public company CEOs, diverse CEOs that come back and and know help companies that are one, two stages before them. And that goes all the way to seed stage. So we're building really this community that supports the development of, of companies and, and the ecosystem.
0: And how can we and our listeners be allies for, for this movement?
1: I think the first step is you got to believe diversity matters. Uh, and then the second step is act on it. And it doesn't mean just like, okay, supporting all raise, but like one, thinking about it, and we see so many, so often, like people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to hire diverse talent. Like hiring is a very important first step. But then also think about how do we make them succeed in terms of resources, access to information, in terms of like the, everything is a career, is a path. And some folks say, oh, yeah, increase my, my pipeline of resumes to include diverse candidates. But then are they actually getting hired? If not, why? Is it because of your process? or not, right? Or if they get hired, but then they quit very little time after, like, why why didn't it work? Or why did it work? Right? It's this idea of the continuum. Uh, And one thing that is for sure, it's a lot easier to be diverse from from the beginning, because culture matters, right? So yeah, early is better.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the same applies for just the culture of a company, right? Fixing a, a broken culture when you're 200 people yeah. is a lot harder than like getting it right in the beginning and then setting a foundational piece that you can build upon.
1: A thousand percent. And, you know, diversity needs to come with inclusion. Right. Like, cause, cause if you have on surface diversity, but they're, they're not included, right. People are not actually performing or having an impact or succeeding, you failed.
0: Yeah. I've observed one thing, like in our cohorts. So we run these cohorts, they're equity free, and we have founders. And I, I think that our our numbers are something in like the 30% uh range as a female founder on the startups, which is above the average. Yeah. But we observe that a lot of the women in our cohorts are just less likely to ask questions or like and so I, I see Gina in the back end, she's my co-founder, and she's like urging like pushing, you know, hey, ask questions. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that it, it's got to be something that there's a consciousness and, and an awareness um, and it's got to be a priority. And the thing that I've always said about diversity is diversity is a strategy. Yeah. It's something that actually is, is going to move your business along and increase your bottom line. So I think that when you actually explain that, just motivations for people, when people understand that it's, it's good for business too, it's also a, a thing that will probably accelerate the increased diversity across the board. For sure.
1: For sure. Um, But it takes effort, right? Like, especially if you're thinking about undersupply, like technical teams or product, it it takes effort to find those diverse candidates.
0: Yeah. Right. It's true. I would love your help with something. I started a rolling fund, like we just started like a couple months ago. And, you know, I went out to my network and I raised a little bit of money and I had to really like actively look for LPs, you know, women that would invest in the fund. And I only have two out of forty-seven, in all transparency, are are women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's been hard. And and what are some of the strategies that you would you know advise in terms of tapping into pools of capital? Because it is something that's central to our strategy, and we we think that we can find the best female founders in Latin America and support them, uh, and not just female, but diverse founders in general. And so what what are your thoughts on that from the construction of our LP base where? Most of the, the capital that we've come across has been founders or GPs of funds. What advice do you have for me?
1: I think that it, so one thing that we noticed, and we talk about it at all rays often, is females don't talk about business as often. Like with with males so easy, it's like you know, people go and hang out or go golf, whatever. It's normal that they 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 trade baseball cards and, and deals and business all the time. And for women, that doesn't happen as often. It really needs a concerted effort to like, okay, no, let's not socialize. Let's talk talk deals and business. Um, But I would encourage you to think about who are nodes in your network that are successful women who would know other women. And I think something that really breaks through is when this diversity goal is authentic. Like if you come to them and say, I, "I'm presenting you an opportunity, and I, I, you know, I also want your help to to find others that you know that are going to benefit, and this matters to me because of this, this, and that." That 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 will probably open doors. Like who are either CEOs that you know who are nodes, or even um, the other thing too is male allies, because sometimes people think that the diversity problem is like it's okay. Let's find women to go fix it and help women fix it, right? But like, okay, who are the other? male ceos who you know who also or fund managers that like care about this and are very vocal and build a network
0: around this and help yeah i mean it's like kind of your life changes when you have a daughter like in my case like Mm -hmm. you know it just and it's naturally just creates an awareness where you see the world through a different lens and yeah i'm definitely on board with the ally finding the allies and we're just started so I mean, when I was talking with Gina, we were discussing being co-founders, she had a list of things. First one, I want to do something super meaningful and have, that has impact. Second one, diversity is important to me. So that was like laid out from the very beginning as we kind of hatched our partnership. And so it was an easy thing for me to, to embrace because something I also care about, but it is much easier to do it from the very beginning. But I am still finding that it's not that easy and it's important to have good intentions but you've got to also figure out how to follow through with those things.
1: And I think that as, you know, as you evolve, you're going to get a lot more leverage. Right. So maybe this idea of okay, any LP that you bring, if it's a, you know, a, a non-diverse LP, it's like, okay, recommend me or introduce me to one that would be diverse. Yeah. Right. Like try to Absolutely. leverage the nodes that you have and but shining the light of what's not there right? Say, okay, like, okay, you want to end? You want to end? In and also introduce me to somebody who you know, who is great, who is non-diverse. And then from there, you kind of go opening up threads that you don't have. Because if you don't ask, people are not going to think about it actively.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Well, thank you. I turned the interview around no. and I started asking for advice for me, but I think these are all relevant topics for other people and and it's front and center in our company. So I'm practicing kind of this building in public. And so sharing, you know, the number of LPs we have and the breakdown is something that our track record of founders is much better, but we just started a couple months ago investing. So it's still early days and we've got an opportunity to kind of expand our horizons there. And it's impressive the career that you've built. And I mean, we met like over a decade ago, I'd say, and, uh, you know, it's cool to see you pass through the ranks of different funds and now you've got your own fund. And and I really enjoyed hearing your description of how you're data-driven and because, I hear that a lot, but when you describe it and the way you describe the process, I mean, it sounds harder as an investor to do that, but I think that you putting the work in is going to really allow you to identify those opportunities, and uh, it sounds like a very compelling uh, strategy.
1: So two things that we believe, like, one is like, okay, there's always money left on the table, and if you actually go talk to hedge fund manager or public market managers, like, they're data-driven, they're maniacal about learning and testing and iterating. Like and we tell our companies to test and iterate all the time, but like we as VCs don't do it. Like I find it very hypocritical. So we change that. Yeah. And then, you know, there's always something to be always something to be learned.
0: That's for sure. The beginner's mind is an important framework for thinking.
1: Yeah. Cause it also allows you to see what is changing and why it's changing. Or, you know, I thought this was going to happen because of X. You can't fix this past decision that you made, but you can you can learn for the next one that you make. And a lot of our job is under uncertainty and is like a long time horizon. So how can you actually even like, right? See as things evolve, like are getting feedback, right? Cause this whole idea of, oh no, I only make, I don't know, five investments a year. They take 10 years. So there's no data to learn from. But yes, I'm choosing to take a yeah. meeting. I'm choosing to not take a meeting. I'm choosing to follow on. I'm choosing to not, you know, pass, not pass. I took this customer call and that made me pass. Why? There's so much, so much.
0: Yeah, and, and being able to evidence that and then document it and creating a framework for that is, it's not trivial, right? And it's its easier. I, I liked how you described the Midas touch because it, it is funny how that, like there's like this mythical VC creature that's like, <laughs> you know, just like all of a sudden it's like gold and this will be gold and this, this is not how the world works. And uh, it might work, but if you tracked enough examples, like you're going to find that there's a data-driven decision somewhere where this is going to increase your level of success, undoubtedly.
1: There's always a why behind everything you do, even if you can't verbalize it, right? There's always a why. So we're trying to make the whys really explicit and make the best decision we can with the information we can at the time. And how can we keep learning?
0: I'm a believer. And uh, thank you so much for for taking the time. My pleasure. And uh, it's good to connect here. And uh, would love to see, you know, anything you end up looking at in Latin America or Brazil, same I'd love here. to uh, be a resource for you.
1: And same here.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Renata Quintini, co-founder and managing partner of Renegade Partners. Be sure to check out Latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship programs and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like her. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.